So we are going to be looking today at this idea, this, this statement that Jesus makes, you will drink this cup. And what does that really mean as we look at the lives of John and James, two brothers who were known as the sons of thunder. But in this passage, they don't look so much like the sons of thunder, but their mother does. So we'll see what that means in just a minute. Um, we want to look at and be reminded of our thesis for this series that Jesus uses ordinary men to accomplish his extraordinary mission. And the reality is that he also uses ordinary women to do his will as well, doesn't he? But we're thinking about men because that's what we are and that's what we're focusing on today. And because we do have to have a map, Hunter has raised the bar and the fact that you have to have a map. I thought I'd better provide a map that fits the, the grid. So here's a map of Luxembourg. <laughs> so there you go, you've got a map. It happens to be a map of Luxembourg where my oldest daughter lives, where General George Patton is buried. And if you might know that he was buried there and that he died, uh, this great warrior general that he was, you probably know that he didn't die in battle. He died after a car accident, after actually being hit by an army vehicle while he was riding in a car and died two weeks later. But uh, he's buried in Luxembourg City. You can go to his grave there. Uh, there's the map today. There you go, Hunter. Cheers. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start with verses 20 to 23. We'll actually go to 20 to 28. So let me read that portion of the scripture for us, and then we'll dive in and see what the message would be for us this morning. It starts with then. So when you have a sentence that starts with then, it's kind of like starting with therefore. You need to know why it's there. So what's the then? Jesus has just told his disciples for the third time that he is going to be taken away and crucified, but he will be raised from the dead. So he said this. This is the third time that we know he has said it, according to Matthew's gospel. And then in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? Now, I love the fact that we can just say, What do you want? You know, in the, in the English language, there are different ways to say that, aren't there? You can say, What do you want? Sometimes you say that to your family member who's asking for something, maybe a child, maybe a friend. Or sometimes if you're kind of put out by someone who keeps asking you for something, you say, what do you want? Or what do you want? I've said that more than once to my daughters. What do you want now? But Jesus, we don't know exactly how he said it, do we? My guess is he said, what do you want? Jesus already knows what she wants. But he asks, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. No small request there. <laughs> Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Then it switches to the sons. They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You've heard of that term, I'm sure, maybe you have used it before, helicopter parenting. That is described uh, in probably Webster as this. It's being involved in a child's life in a way that is over-controlling, over-protecting, and over-perfecting in a way that is an excess of responsible parenting. 
helicopter parents. Maybe you had one. Maybe not. It seems to be more of a more recent vintage. Maybe you were one. <laughs> Although it's probably likely that most of the time we think of the mothers being more in this way. It's true in this passage. And that term has kind of evolved. It was helicopter parent, and then it became lawnmower parent. The person who mowed the path, removing all the weeds and obstacles to their child's success. Then it became the snowplow parent, literally pushing every obstacle out of the way so their child would have an, an easy path into success in whatever they choose to do in life. I think the most latest version is bulldozer parent. <laughs> and that even describes it in a better, more clear fashion. I've known a few of those. You probably have too. You know, those are the parents who... who um, yeah, they, they might coerce or influence the coach to make sure that their son or daughter gets to play on the team, gets to play the spot they want to play, gets the role, gets the starting position. Uh, that's a helicopter parent, a bulldozer parent. It's the parent who, who fills out the employment applications for their son's first job, and I've known a parent who did that, and then negotiated the salary for him. I didn't have that opportunity. <laughs> But that's been known to happen. I do know of a parent, and I won't say any names. They don't go here. They were in a previous church I was in. And she was a single parent and proud of her son who went to college and wanted to make sure that he succeeded. So she did for him in college, from a distance, what she had done for him through high school. And that is write all of his papers for him. Sadly, he went to VMI. <laughs> I think that is sad, isn't it? <laughs> we went to the or um, I think the biggest example, greatest example I've seen of an ongoing helicopter parent or bulldozer parent was the woman in another congregation where I served who, after her son married and had the first grandchild, she was not quite sure how her, um, her daughter-in-law was doing with the grandson, so she sneaked into their apartment and hid a video camera so she could keep an eye on her daughter-in-law as she parented the grandson. That's going beyond even bulldozer parenting, I think. But if you get the idea, well, welcome to the mother of John and James. Her, no, her name is Salome, we think. She is the wife of Zebedee. And she's got this thing about making sure her sons get into the right place. But, you know, you got to stop for a minute and, and wonder if Jesus called James and John, when he called them to himself to be disciples, he said, you will be, or you are, and he gave them a new name, the Sons of Thunder. Why would he do that? Well, there was something about them that was passionate, maybe, um, impetuous, probably. We know in one case when they were traveling through Samaria, headed to Jerusalem, and they were looking for a place to stay, and they weren't being warmly welcomed in Samaria because they were Jews headed through going to Jerusalem, which wasn't a favorite place of the people who lived in Samaria. And you might recall that um, they weren't being hosted very well, which probably meant that no one was opening their homes up for them to spend the night. And it was James and John who went to Jesus and said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them and destroy them? That's sons of thunder there. Those are guys who, hey, hey, let's get this done. Jesus, you want us to call down fire? You might remember that Jesus didn't really want that to happen. But that's how they were. But now we see them in a different setting. They come to Jesus with their mother, and their mother makes a request of Jesus. This really interesting request. Did the sons of thunder really need the mother to show up to go to bat for them? Or is she just a, a helicopter parent? Or maybe a, a bulldozer parent? 
Maybe so. We know that the, the account of this in the Gospel of Mark only has the sons coming and asking the question, but Matthew shows us, no, there was a, there was a mother, a pretty strong mother, who had interest in making sure her sons got where she thought they deserved to be. So what does she ask? She says, say to these two sons of mine that they are to, seat, to be seated, at, one at the right hand and one at the left, in your kingdom. So what is the reason she makes that request? Well, she thinks they're worthy. She thinks they deserve it. She would like them to have the honor. And it might be with nothing but very good motives coming from a mother. But what a request that she makes. If the disciples ask that, as they seem to do in Mark chapter 3, I think, or wherever it is, um, it's probably fitting here that they're together, that mother and sons are together. And you might ask, well, why would they even have the audacity to ask such a question? You've got to remember that James and John, along with Peter, were already a part of this like inner circle with Jesus. They were the three disciples who were probably closest to Jesus. And so maybe they already felt some entitlement. Um, we're, we've already been with you, Jesus. They're the ones who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So maybe they sense that, well, we're already kind of in. We know that we are in good standing with Jesus. Maybe if we ask now, we'll get a good place of honor. They want some of the glory. Jesus has been talking about this glory. Maybe they think, well, this is how he gets up. They're already on track. Maybe it's a little way to get some inside fame and glory. Get it before the rest of the guys. But there may be another reason. It's possible in tradition, some traditions suggest it. We're not sure, but it's possible that Salome, their mother, is actually the sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's a good way to explain that, but I'm not going to take the time. It would take too much time to go back and forth. You can look it up and Google it, and you'll find out why. That tradition is here. But So if that were the case, just think. Salome, the mother of James and John, is the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. Jesus is Salome's nephew. James and John are not only disciples of Jesus, they're cousins, first cousins. If there is a family connection, it makes even more sense that they would come as a family, mother and two sons, and ask Jesus, the nephew, the cousin, hey, you know, give us a little, little inside track here. Go ahead and say it. We want to be at your right and left hand when you come into your kingdom. And it's likely they're not just asking that, you know, when you get to the upper room and we're all disciples sitting around, we want to sit one of you on the left and one of you on the right. I mean, John ends up in one of those positions, as it turns out, we think. Uh, we're pretty sure of that from Scripture. They're not talking about that. I don't even think they're talking about this idea that in a, in a heavenly banquet, as described in Revelation, that we want to be the ones closest to you in that banquet when the church is revealed in all its glory because Jesus finally can, is consummating his kingdom. They're talking about the heavenly realms, the throne of God. They're, this is a big ask. You know, you've heard that in prayer you should ask great things of God. Well, here you go, guys. <laughs> I don't think there's much you could ask greater than this. We want to be at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom. In the heavenly realm. That's where we want to head. That was the request. Pretty big, I'd say. But it may also, as I suggest, be a family favor. And if that's true, it's not just cronyism, you know, where you're friends with someone who's got power and you get alongside of them and you ask for a little bit of that power. Give me a little of the perk that goes with it. It's really, it's both 
cronyism, but it's really, it could be nepotism. It could be that idea, and nepotism as defined, if I think I have a slide, that the practice among those with power or influence favoring relatives of, or friends, especially by giving them jobs. Well, Jesus is going to give them a job, all right, but they want position. They're looking for power. Now, we're pretty familiar with nepotism in, in our country, particularly, um, even in the executive office. A few examples just to remind you. <laughs> Donald Trump appointed both his daughter and his son-in-law to pretty prominent roles in the White House. And that's really nepotism, but that's what happens. Bill Clinton, remember, named his wife Hillary to chair a reform task force. And when that happened, you might recall that there was a lawsuit. He was legally challenged for doing that because it was said that it violated the nepotism or anti-nepotism codes that had been in place since the 1960s. And they came in place, the anti-nepotism laws, in the White House that would prevent a president from naming relatives to federal positions pretty much occurred when John F. Kennedy named his brother Robert to be the Attorney General of the United States. Happened that Robert, when he was named, would be the youngest attorney general since 1804. And that Robert Kennedy, as attorney general, had never practiced law. But he became the attorney general. <laughs> he had a law degree, he just never practiced. Turns out he wasn't so bad at the job. But it was still nepotism, and some anti-nepotism code came into play after that. But if we go back a little further in history, Franklin Delano Roosevelt who admired his fifth cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, who was, of course, much older than him. Um, he was known for putting family members in prominent positions in the federal government. He did marry Theodore Roosevelt's favorite niece, Eleanor. A family affair going on there in the White House. Before that, think of Ulysses S. Grant. <clears throat> History suggests that he named 40 different family members to federal positions. You might think, wow, there were even that many federal positions after the Civil War, but yes, he did. Some of them, were, in fact, were so corrupt that they were charged with crimes and put in prison, after which uh, Grant immediately gave them presidential pardons and put them right back in the jobs that they held. He knew how to do this pretty well. But the, the master of nepotism in the White House before there was a White House would have been John Adams. John Adams named all of his family members into prominent roles in the new government of the republic, so much so that he was called a monarchist. And people began to think that what he really wanted to be, our second president, was not president, but king. And then he wrote some suggestions that perhaps it would be a good idea to pave the way for family members to be involved in the ruling of the republic. Whoever was elected president should have his family close to him in power. And perhaps it is suggested, at least by some historians, that when he lost his re-election bid and lost to Thomas Jefferson, that part of the reason was that the new republic thought, we don't want another king. <laughs> he looks too much like the king of England. We need someone else. All that to say, nepotism, it's not new. James and John and their mother Salome, when they come and ask Jesus for a special honor, a special place of glory, that's not a new thing. It happened back then. It probably happened. We know it happened. Look at the lives of some of the Roman emperors and where they put their family members. Well, before they put them to death, they gave them jobs to do. So the ass. Again, what is the ass? Say that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And so how does Jesus respond? You do, know not, you do not know what you are asking. You don't know what you're asking, Salome. 
He doesn't rebuke, does he? It's interesting. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? <laughs> or don't you know we have anti-nepotism laws? <laughs> doesn't say that. He just simply says, you don't know what you're asking. They're, they're ignorant of something. Actually, two things, I think. They're missing the point in two different ways. There's two things that both James and John, who were the sons of thunder, but here they're relying on their mother to, to do the downfield blocking for them. Uh, there's two things they're not quite sure. The first thing they don't really realize is that suffering comes before glory. Suffering comes before glory. We know that because as the conversation continues, Jesus asked, and he's pointing now to James and John, not so much to the mother, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And, of course, they say, oh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> we can do that. I mean, it's like a coach going to put in the second string guy. And, Are you able to, to complete the pass downfield? Oh, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. They think they can do it. Now, remember, right before this passage in Matthew, Jesus has explained to his disciples for the third time that he is about to be arrested and flogged and crucified. They should understand something about what's about to happen. Jesus, as he talks about the cup that he has to drink, is probably referring to the cup of God's wrath. Good Old Testament allusion there. The cup of God's wrath is what Jesus would drink when he goes to the cross. The wrath of God poured out on his son. Poured out the wrath of God against our sin. Poured out against his sinless son. Jesus knows he's about to drink that cup. He'll get to the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. He'll ask the Father, is, is there a way to take this cup away? I don't want, in, my, in the fleshly part of Jesus, he did not want to drink that cup. He asks his disciples, are you able to drink that cup? Now, they probably didn't know what in the world he's talking about. James and John probably didn't know exactly what he meant. But in the best of intentions, maybe they had some idea. But they say, oh, yes, we are. We're able to do that. They're, they're missing a big point here. They're thinking that glory comes from being close to Jesus. Glory comes by just simply asking for a position of power and glory. And Jesus reminds them that the way to glory is through suffering. Well, how do we know that's true? How do we know that the way to glory is through suffering? Well, we know it's true because Jesus said so. Right? But he also demonstrated it. How does Jesus get to the ultimate glory that Jesus will have when all the earth, all the universe will finally bow the knee and understand and recognize and acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords? He got there through the way of the cross. And then when Jesus tells his disciples, and guys, this means us as well, he didn't say to them, take up your crown and follow me, did he? <laughs> he said, take up your cross and follow me. That's how we follow Jesus. The way to glory, and Jesus promises glory. He has already promised his disciples that they would experience glory. His glory that he would share with them. He's even said back in chapter 9, or 19, excuse me, that they would rule over nations. That they would sit on thrones. They've already heard this from him. We're going to receive positions of power and glory. So James and John said, well, if we're going to get that, why don't we get the best part? <laughs> because after all, we are the sons of thunder. <laughs> and after all, our mother is a bulldozer parent, and she's asking for us. Jesus says, you're missing one thing here. First, two things. First thing is this, suffering comes before glory. You know, when Jesus says that, that statement, you will drink this cup, 
It kind of reminds me of the Empire Strikes Back. You remember when Luke Skywalker is with Yoda and he's going through training and it's not going great. But Luke thinks it's going great. He thinks he's ready to go and he's, he says to Yoda, I will not fail you. I'm not afraid. And little Yoda says, you will be. You will be. They're going to be afraid. You're going to drink the cup, Jesus says. And we know they did drink the cup. It wasn't exactly the way Jesus had to drink it. Nobody could drink the cup the way Jesus did. Nobody could die for the sins of the world except for Jesus. We will die in our sins if we don't go to Christ and come to, to God through Christ. We will die in sin, but we can't die for our sin. We can't eliminate the guilt and the shame and the punishment that is due our sin by dying ourselves. <coughs> we needed a Savior. They needed a Savior. Jesus says, that's the cup that you will have to drink. And so we know that in Acts chapter 12, it is described that James became the first of the, the apostles martyred when he was put to death by Herod Antipas I. He drank the cup. Suffering came before glory. We know that John probably was a disciple who made it through a, a life and didn't die because of a beheading or crucifixion. He may have died a natural death. He may have lived longer than any of the other 12 disciples, but he suffered plenty along the way. Part of that was being exiled to the Isle of Patmos. They drank the cup. Jesus said they would. You will drink this cup. But then he continues on, and that's the second thing that they didn't quite realize, and that's this point. That the choice of who sits at the right and left hand of Jesus isn't even Jesus' choice. It's the Father's choice. God the Father's choice. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, he said. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. They would have liked to have that position. Jesus can't even give it to them if he wanted to. He understands the role that he is playing. He understands the calling he has from the Father. It's the Father's decision. Now Jesus, as I said in chapter 19 of Matthew, has already promised the apostles that they would sit, these 12 apostles, alongside of him, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But to grant who is closest to Jesus was not his decision. It was the Father's. And you might think, well, the Father's probably going to prepare those positions for those disciples who are most like Jesus. And James and John aren't necessarily demonstrating that in this encounter with him. And the mother as well, certainly not. One commentator has put it this way. It is likely that the two thrones that will be closest to Jesus in the heavenly realm will be taken by the apostles who were the least self-conscious, the least calculating, the least self-ambitious. Not sure that is really describing James and John right here. So they missed two things. They missed the fact that suffering always comes before the glory they miss the fact that the role that they're asking for is not Jesus's to give. It's a, Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> you need to speak to the Father. He's the one who grants that position. So we have to then see what happens next. Because as it turns out, Salome and James and John, when they talked to Jesus, they were, they were an earshot of the other disciples. Now, what do you think they're going to think about this? Well, not much. <laughs> so it says this in the rest of this part of our passage this morning, starting in verse 24. And when the ten heard about it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the ten other disciples, they hear what James and John and Salome, their mother, has asked of Jesus, and they're just indignant. And you can just imagine what they were thinking, what they're saying about them. How dare them? Who do they think they are? Why do they think they're the favorites? What have they done to deserve special honor, even more honor than the rest of us received? And Jesus, again, doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't pull them aside and say, oh, come on, guys, get over it. Get over yourself. Hey, you know, you know James and John, they're sons of thunder. What did you expect them to do? I mean, come on, you've been hanging with them for a couple years now. That's the way they are. They're going to act like that. Don't pay me any attention. No, he takes this opportunity, he does Jesus, as he overhears the ten other disciples discussing their enmity toward James and John, and he takes the opportunity to do some teaching, to remind his disciples what it means to be a servant in the kingdom of God. And he says it this way, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the leaders, the rulers of the Gentiles... And my guess is Jesus could have included some of the rulers of the Jews as well in this description. They lord it over those under them. They use their power to keep people in line. That those, I, the idea of control is the idea of authority and rulership in Gentile leadership, right? If I can control everyone under me, I stay on top. I keep them below me. They do what I say. I get to benefit from it. That's the way the world operates. Jesus identifies that. So that's the way the world around you, the Gentile world around you, is doing life. It shall not be that way with you, he says. Well, why does he say that? Because that's what he is sensing among his disciples. He is sensing that what they're struggling with is living in a culture that has one idea of leadership and rulership and honor and glory. And that idea does not fit with the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring on earth. And so he says, that's not going to be the way it is for you. Instead, he says, there's a different way to do things. It's this way. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now, again, let me remind you that already these apostles, these 12 apostles, had been giving an amazing amount of authority and power. I mean, just imagine. They have been already been given authority and power to go into villages and heal people of diseases and afflictions. To cast demons out of people. When's the last time you've done that in your neighborhood? You know, you've gone into someone's house, they were ill, and I'm going to heal you now. I've got the authority. Or you've seen someone who's demonized, and you say, I've got the authority. You know, we don't do that day to day, do we? I'm not saying that everybody in Israel did that either, but the 12 apostles did. They had been given authority. And thus, they have been given power by Jesus to do some pretty remarkable things. And that's, that's amazing. They, they know the taste of authority in a spiritual sense and how it plays out in real life, day-to-day -day life. And so they're making a, a jump from having the authority to go in and serve people to now using that authority in a way that serves themselves. That's what they're thinking. That's what James and John are thinking, most likely. Jesus says, wrong thinking. That's not how it works. 
the power, the authority that's been granted to you and that will be granted to you is not to be used for yourself but for others. Because even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And whoever wants to be great among you, you start by being a servant. Whoever wants to be first, and that's what James and John are asking. Great, you want to be first? This is how you get to first. You become a slave. The lowest of the low. You consider everybody, literally everybody, more important than you are. So even though they had this amazing authority to cast out demons, to heal people of diseases, even though they've seen Jesus do amazing things, they hadn't quite put it together yet that really the way to advance in the kingdom. And guys, as men, we tend to always think about how do you advance. It's probably somewhat the way we're wired. Uh, whether it was in the workplace, whether it's on an athletic team, whether it's in your standing in the neighborhood, even in the family, there's something in us that we tend to think, how do I advance? Or, put it another way, how do I look the best? How do I look good? It's called pride. <laughs> it's, it's really hard that we all struggle with it, but we do. And that's what these disciples were struggling with. And Jesus says, the way you become first is exactly the opposite of what you're thinking. You become a slave. That's how you do it. And Jesus then says, here's the example, the Son of Man. Which he's speaking, of course, of himself. Verse 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life for a, as a ransom for many. Now, the many he's speaking of there, of course, means that he gave his life for all the elect that was, were called to, to, that he was called to save. Everybody that God chooses. The many, though, here probably includes as well that reminder that he came not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. So he's continuing, even in these little side comments a bit, to expand the disciples' idea of what it means to serve and to be in the kingdom of God. He's given him great authority. He's given James and John inside views of his own life. He gets them close because he sees that they're going to be, with Peter, three of the most important disciples in the early church. He understands that, but he has to build them to make them that. So he uses this teachable moment to do that. Remember our thesis, Jesus uses ordinary men to accomplish extraordinary mission. Jesus uses ordinary men. Now, we do struggle a bit when we read the scripture and see the disciples and we laugh at how slow they are on the uptake sometimes and how they just don't seem to get what Jesus is saying. And then we remind ourselves, well, we're just like that. We're just like it. And then we look at them and say, gosh, we can never be like they are. I mean, I can't imagine ever having the, the spiritual authority to go into a hospital and start healing people or to cast out demons and some urban, decrepit place that needs that kind of spiritual input. But maybe we could if God calls us to do it. The key being, it's not up to us, it's up to God. He's the one, it's up to Jesus. He's the one who equips his people. But I do know this, that as men, we do think about advancement. We do seek prominence. We have spent, many of us, a good part of our lives trying to work our way up the food chain and to achieve the benefits that go with it. And that's what we do in American culture, particularly. We don't tend to be satisfied with any position. We're always looking to the next thing. And it's not just in any one particular profession or occupation. It happens in everyone, including ministry. 
I mean, one reason that pastors keep moving around, well, there's several. One is that the people get sick and tired of them. It's time for you to go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the biggest reason. <laughs> but another reason is pastors are like men of anywhere. They look for a bigger, better position. Something with more prominence, something with more advancement, something that makes them look better. It's, it's how we are, guys. And maybe we spent a good part of our lives pursuing that kind of achievement. Maybe we've even reached some places that made us feel good about it, or maybe we haven't, and maybe we still dream about it. Maybe we still think about the achievement we could have had. If only I had. You know, we think about that. I mean, how many times do you go way back to high school and think about, if only I had done that, I would have been recognized more. We do it. It's something about us. We want to be known. We want to be seen. We've wasted enough time, though, I suggest already, feeding our own pride. And that's Jesus is saying, guys, don't feed your pride. The way to be first is to be the slave of all. It's to go to the low point, the low position. And to give up your old ambitions and dreams and pick up a new ambition and dream, and that is to make disciples of all nations. Because that's the authority that the disciples will be granted at the end of Matthew to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that had been commanded by Jesus. They're going to get more authority, will James and John, and they will use that authority, as we see in the book of Acts, to begin to build the church. So guys, we too have been given the same authority that they did. We too have been granted the same commission to go and make disciples of all nations. God uses ordinary men like us to do extraordinary things in his kingdom. But selfish ambition has no place in the kingdom of God. But selfless service certainly does. Can we do that? Only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we do it. So, James and John, that's a quick look at them. Next week we'll continue on with another look at some other guys. Peter, James, and John, part one, child arise is the theme for next week. So before I pray... Well, I will pray then. I'm going to give you a few questions to talk about. If you want to break into some groups, spend a little time. These are not hard questions. There is no test yet, anyway. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, we are reminded by this passage, as you encounter two of your disciples who were seeking the kinds of things that we live our lives in, in our world seeking as well, that the way to be first in your kingdom isn't the way that we thought that the way to be first in your eyes is to be at the lowest point, is to follow your lead, is to be the slave of all, is to, to be willing to give our lives for you. Jesus, we would rather take up our crown to follow you than to take up our cross, but help us today to take up our cross. And thank you, Lord, that in the reality of it all, that the glory that we will share will not be glory that we have gained, but glory that is yours, that you have promised to share with all who follow you and are your disciples. So would you make us into the men who are your disciples even more today than we were yesterday? And may it be for your glory. Amen. So here's three questions to think about, guys. What might it cost in terms of time, energy, and resources to serve somebody else today? Let's think about it today. What does it cost to serve someone else? Secondly, what are the biggest obstacles that keep you from serving someone besides yourself? I'm pretty good at serving myself. How about you? I've spent a lifetime learning how to do that. But there are obstacles to, for me serving someone else. What are some of yours? 
Where in your life can you serve someone today? That's our three questions. Take some time to think about it. Thanks.